Chapter Twenty Five of Beasts, Men, and Gods. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Beasts, Men, and Gods by Ferdinand Ossendowski. Chapter Twenty Five Harassing Days. Once more we found ourselves in the whirl of events. During our fortnight away, a great deal had happened here. The Chinese commissioner Wang Tsao-tsun had sent eleven envoys to Urga, but none had returned. The situation in Mongolia remained far from clear. The Russian detachment had been increased by the arrival of new colonists, and secretly continued its illegal existence, although the Chinese knew about it through their omnipresent system of spies. In the town no Russian or foreign citizens left their houses, and all remained armed and ready to act. At night armed sentinels stood guard in all their courtyards. It was the Chinese who induced such precautions. By order of their commissar, all the Chinese merchants with stocks of rifles armed their staffs and handed over any surplus guns to the officials, who with these formed and equipped a force of two hundred coolies into a special garrison of gamins. Then they took possession of the Mongolian arsenal, and distributed these additional guns among the Chinese vegetable farmers in the Naganhushun, where there was always a floating population of the lowest grade of transient Chinese laborers. This trash of China now felt themselves strong, gathered together in excited discussions, and evidently were preparing for some outburst of aggression. At night the coolies transported many boxes of cartridges from the Chinese shops to the Naganhushun, and the behavior of the Chinese mob became unbearably audacious. These coolies and gamins impertinently stopped and searched people right on the streets, and sought to provoke fights that would allow them to take anything they wanted. Through secret news we received from certain Chinese quarters, we learned that the Chinese were preparing a pogrom for all the Russians and Mongols in Uliasutai. We fully realized that it was only necessary to fire one single house at the right part of the town, and the entire settlement of wooden buildings would go up in flames. The whole population prepared to defend themselves, increased the sentinels in the compounds, appointed leaders for certain sections of the town, organized a special fire brigade, and prepared horses, carts, and food for a hasty flight. The situation became worse when news arrived from Kabdo that the Chinese there had made a pogrom, killing some of the inhabitants and burning the whole town after a wild looting orgy. Most of the people got away to the forests on the mountains, but it was at night and consequently without warm clothes and without food. During the following days these mountains around Kabdo heard many cries of misfortune, woe, and death. The severe cold and hunger killed off the women and children out under the open sky of the Mongolian winter. This news was soon known to the Chinese. They laughed in mockery, and soon organized a big meeting at the Naganhushun to discuss letting the mob and gamins loose on the town. A young Chinese, the son of a cook of one of the colonists, revealed this news. We immediately decided to make an investigation. A Russian officer and my friend joined me with this young Chinese as a guide for a trip to the outskirts of the town. We feigned simply a stroll, but were stopped by the Chinese sentinel on the side of the city toward the Naganhushun, 
with an impertinent command that no one was allowed to leave the town. As we spoke with him, I noticed that between the town and the Naganhushun Chinese guards were stationed all along the way, and that streams of Chinese were moving in that direction. We saw at once it was impossible to reach the meeting from this approach, so we chose another route. We left the city from the eastern side, and passed along by the camp of the Mongolians, who had been reduced to beggary by the Chinese impositions. There also they were evidently anxiously awaiting the turn of events, for, in spite of the lateness of the hour, none had gone to sleep. We slipped out on the ice, and worked around by the river to the Naganhushun. As we passed free of the city, we began to sneak cautiously along, taking advantage of every bit of cover. We were armed with revolvers and hand-grenades, and knew that a small detachment had been prepared in the town to come to our aid if we should be in danger. First the young Chinese stole forward with my friend following him like a shadow, constantly reminding him that he would strangle him like a mouse if he made one move to betray us. I fear the young guide did not greatly enjoy the trip with my gigantic friend puffing all too loudly with the unusual exertions. At last the fences of Nagan Hushun were in sight, and nothing between us and them save the open plain, where our group would have been easily spotted, so that we decided to crawl up one by one, save that the Chinese was retained in the society of my trusted friend. Fortunately there were many heaps of frozen manure on the plain, which we made use of as cover to lead us right up to our objective point, the fence of the enclosures. In the shadow of this we slunk along to the courtyard, where the voices of the excited crowd beckoned us. As we took good vantage points in the darkness for listening and making observations, we remarked two extraordinary things in our immediate neighborhood. Another invisible guest was present with us at the Chinese gathering. He lay on the ground with his head in a hole dug by the dogs under the fence. He was perfectly still and evidently had not heard our advance. Nearby in a ditch lay a white horse with his nose muzzled, and a little further away stood another saddled horse tied to a fence. In the courtyard there was a great hubbub. About two thousand men were shouting, arguing, and flourishing their arms about in wild gesticulations. Nearly all were armed with rifles, revolvers, swords, and axes. In among the crowd circulated the gammons, constantly talking, handing out papers, explaining and assuring. Finally a big broad-shouldered Chinese mounted the well-combing, waved his rifle about over his head, and opened a tirade in strong, sharp tones. "'He is assuring the people,' said our interpreter, "'that they must do here what the Chinese have done in Kabdo, and must secure from the commissioner the assurance of an order to his guard not to prevent the carrying out of their plans. Also, that the Chinese commissioner must demand from the Russians all their weapons. Then we shall take vengeance on the Russians for their Blagoveshensk crime when they drowned three thousand Chinese in 1900. You remain here while I go to the commissioner and talk with him. He jumped down from the well and quickly made his way to the gate toward the town. At once I saw the man who was lying with his head under the fence draw back out of his hole, take his white horse from the ditch, and then run over to untie the other horse and lead them both back to our side, which was away from the city. 
he left the second horse there and hid himself around the corner of the Hushun. The spokesman went out of the gate, and seeing his horse over on the other side of the enclosure, slung his rifle across his back and started for his mount. He had gone about half-way when the stranger behind the corner of the fence suddenly galloped out and in a flash literally swung the man clear from the ground up across the pommel of his saddle, where we saw him tie the mouth of the semi-strangled Chinese with a cloth and dash off with him toward the west away from the town. "'Who do you suppose he is?' I asked of my friend, who answered up at once, "'It must be Tushigun Lama.' His whole appearance did strongly remind me of this mysterious Lama Avenger, and his manner of addressing himself to his enemy was a strict replica of that of Tushigun. Late in the night we learned that some time after their orator had gone to seek the commissioner's cooperation in their venture, his head had been flung over the fence into the midst of the waiting audience, and that eight gamins had disappeared on their way from the Hushun to the town without leaving trace or trail. This event terrorized the Chinese mob and calmed their heated spirits. The next day we received very unexpected aid. A young Mongol galloped in from Urga, his overcoat torn, his hair all dishevelled and fallen to his shoulders, and a revolver prominent beneath his girdle. Proceeding directly to the market where the Mongols are always gathered, without leaving his saddle he cried out, Urga is captured by our Mongols, and Chiang Chun Baron Ungerni Bogdo Hutuktu is once more our Khan. Mongols, kill the Chinese and pillage their shops. Our patience is exhausted. Through the crowd rose the roar of excitement. The rider was surrounded with a mob of insistent questioners. The old Mongol sate, Chultun Bailey, who had been dismissed by the Chinese, was at once informed of this news and asked to have the messenger brought to him. After questioning the man, he arrested him for inciting the people to riot, but he refused to turn him over to the Chinese authorities. I was personally with the sate at the time, and heard his decision in the matter. When the Chinese commissioner, Wang Tsao-tsun, threatened the sate for disobedience to his authority, the old man simply fingered his rosary and said, I believe the story of this Mongol in its every word, and I apprehend that you and I shall soon have to reverse our relationship. I felt that Wang Tsao-tsun also accepted the correctness of the Mongol story, because he did not insist further. From this moment the Chinese disappeared from the streets of Uliasutai as though they never had been, and synchronously the patrols of the Russian officers and of our foreign colony took their places. The panic among the Chinese was heightened by receipt of a letter containing the news that the Mongols and Altai Tartars under the leadership of the Tartar officer Kalgorodov, pursued the Chinese who were making off with their booty from the sack of Kabdo, and overtook and annihilated them on the borders of Xinjiang. Another part of the letter told how General Bakich and the six thousand men who had been interned with him by the Chinese authorities on the river Emil had received arms and started to join with Ataman Aninkov, who had been interned in Kuljah, with the ultimate intention of linking up with Baron Ungern. This rumour proved to be wrong, because neither Bakich or Aninkov entertained this intention, because Aninkov had been transported by the Chinese into the depths of Turkestan.
However, the news produced veritable stupefaction among the Chinese. Just at this time there arrived at the house of the Bolshevist Russian colonist Burdikov three Bolshevik agents from Irkutsk named Saltikov, Freiman, and Novak, who started an agitation among the Chinese authorities to get them to disarm the Russian officers and hand them over to the Reds. They persuaded the Chinese Chamber of Commerce to petition the Irkutsk Soviet to send a detachment of Reds to Uliasutai for the protection of the Chinese against the white detachments. Fryman brought with him communistic pamphlets in Mongolian and instructions to begin the reconstruction of the telegraph line to Irkutsk. Burdikov also received some messages from the Bolsheviki. This quartet developed their policy very successfully, and soon saw Wang Tsao-tsun fall in with their schemes. Once more the days of expecting a pogrom in Uliasatai returned to us. The Russian officers anticipated attempts to arrest them. The representative of one of the American firms went with me to the commissioner for a parley. We pointed out to him the illegality of his acts, inasmuch as he was not authorized by his government to treat with the Bolsheviki when the Soviet government had not been recognized by Peking. Wang Tsao-tsun and his adviser Fu Xiang were palpably confused at finding we knew of his secret meetings with the Bolshevik agents. He assured us that his guard was sufficient to prevent any such pogrom. It was quite true that his guard was very capable, as it consisted of well-trained and disciplined soldiers under the command of a serious-minded and well-educated officer. But what could eighty soldiers do against a mob of three thousand coolies, one thousand armed merchants, and two hundred gamins? We strongly registered our apprehensions, and urged him to avoid any bloodshed, pointing out that the foreign and Russian population were determined to defend themselves to the last moment. Wang at once ordered the establishment of strong guards on the streets, and thus made a very interesting picture with all the Russian, foreign, and Chinese patrols moving up and down throughout the whole town. Then we did not know there were three hundred more sentinels on duty, the men of Tushigun Lama hidden nearby in the mountains. Once more the picture changed very sharply and suddenly. The Mongolian Sait received news through the Lamas of the nearest monastery that Colonel Casagrande, after fighting with the Chinese irregulars, had captured Van Cure and had formed their Russian-Mongolian brigades of cavalry, mobilizing the Mongols by the order of the living Buddha and the Russians by order of Baron Ungern. A few hours later it became known that in the large monastery of Tsein, the Chinese soldiers had killed the Russian Captain Barsky, and as a result some of the troops of Casagrande attacked and swept the Chinese out of the place. At the taking of Van Cure, the Russians arrested a Korean communist who was on his way from Moscow with gold and propaganda to work in Korea and America. Colonel Casagrande sent this Korean with his freight of gold to Baron Ungern. After receiving this news, the chief of the Russian detachment in Uliasatai arrested all the Bolsheviki agents, and passed judgment upon them, and upon the murders of the Bobrovs. Canine, Madame Puzikov, and Fryman were shot. Regarding Saltikov and Novak, some doubt sprang up, and moreover, Saltikov escaped and hid, while Novak, under advice from Lieutenant Colonel Mikhailov, left for the West. 
the chief of the Russian detachment gave out orders for the mobilization of the Russian colonists, and openly took Uliasatai under his protection, with the tacit agreement of the Mongolian authorities. The Mongol Sate, Chulton Bailey, convened a council of the neighbouring Mongolian princes, the soul of which was the noted Mongolian patriot Hun Jap Lama. The princes quickly formulated their demands upon the Chinese for the complete evacuation of the territory subject to the Sate Chulton Bailey. Out of it grew parleys, threats, and friction between the various Chinese and Mongolian elements. Wang Tsao-tsun proposed his scheme of settlement, which some of the Mongolian princes accepted, but Jap Lama at the decisive moment threw the Chinese document to the ground, drew his knife, and swore that he would die by his own hand rather than set it as a seal upon this treacherous agreement. As a result, the Chinese proposals were rejected, and the antagonists began to prepare themselves for the struggle. All the armed Mongols were summoned from Jasaktu Khan, Sein Noyan Khan, and the dominion of Jahansi Lama. The Chinese authorities placed their four machine-guns, and prepared to defend the fortress. Continuous deliberations were held by both the Chinese and Mongols. Finally, our old acquaintance Tseren came to me as one of the unconcerned foreigners, and handed to me the joint requests of Wang Tsao-tsun and Chultun Bailey to try to pacify the two elements, and to work out a fair agreement between them. Similar requests were handed to the representative of an American firm. The following evening we held the first meeting of the arbitrators and the Chinese and Mongolian representatives. It was passionate and stormy, so that we foreigners lost all hope of the success of our mission. However, at midnight, when the speakers were tired, we secured agreement on two points. The Mongols announced that they did not want to make war, and that they desired to settle this matter in such a way as to retain the friendship of the great Chinese people, while the Chinese commissioner acknowledged that China had violated the treaties by which full independence had been legally granted to Mongolia. These two points formed for us the groundwork of the next meeting, and gave us the starting points for urging reconciliation. The deliberations continued for three days, and finally turned so that we foreigners could propose our suggestions for an agreement. Its chief provisions were that the Chinese authorities should surrender administrative powers, return the arms to the Mongolians, disarm the two hundred gamins, and leave the country, and that the Mongols on their side should give free and honourable passage of their country to the commissioner with his armed guard of eighty men. This Chinese-Mongolian Treaty of Uliasitai was signed and sealed by the Chinese commissioners, Wang Tsao-tsun and Fu Xiang, by both Mongolian states, by Hun Jap Lama and other princes, as well as by the Russian and Chinese presidents of the Chambers of Commerce, and by us foreign arbitrators. The Chinese officials and convoy began at once to pack up their belongings and prepare for departure. The Chinese merchants remained in Uliasitai because Sait Chultan Bailey, now having full authority and power, guaranteed their safety. The day of departure for the expedition of Wang Tsao-tsun arrived. The camels with their packs already filled the Yaman courtyard, and the men only awaited the arrival of their horses from the plains. Suddenly the news spread everywhere that the herd of horses had been stolen during the night and run off toward the south. 
Of two soldiers that had been sent out to follow the tracks of the herd, only one came back with the news that the other had been killed. Astonishment spread over the whole town, while among the Chinese it turned to open panic. It perceptibly increased when some Mongols from a distant Urtan to the east came in, and announced that in various places along the post-road to Urga they had discovered the bodies of sixteen of the soldiers whom Wang Tsao-tsun had sent out with letters for Urga. The mystery of these events will soon be explained. The chief of the Russian detachment received a letter from a Cossack colonel, V. N. Domojirov, containing the order to disarm immediately the Chinese garrison, to arrest all Chinese officials for transport to Baron Ungern at Urga, to take control of Uliasatai by force if necessary, and to join forces with his detachment. At the very same time a messenger from the Narabanchi Hutuktu galloped in, with a letter to the effect that a Russian detachment under the leadership of Hun Boldan and Colonel Domojirov from Urga had pillaged some Chinese firms and killed the merchants, had come to the monastery and demanded horses, food, and shelter. The Hutuktu asked for help because the ferocious conqueror of Kabdu, Hun Boldan, could very easily pillage the unprotected, isolated monastery. We strongly urged Colonel Mikhailov not to violate the sealed treaty, and discountenance all the foreigners and Russians who had taken part in making it, for this would but be to imitate the Bolshevik principle of making deceit the leading rule in all acts of state. This touched Mikhailov, and he answered Domojirov that Uliasatai was already in his hands without a fight, that over the building of the former Russian consulate the tricolor flag of Russia was flying, the gamins had been disarmed, but that the other orders could not be carried out, because their execution would violate the Chinese-Mongolian treaty just signed in Uliasitai. Daily several envoys travelled from Narabanchi Hutuktu to Uliasitai. The news became more and more disquieting. The Hutuktu reported that Hun Baldon was mobilizing the Mongolian beggars and horse-stealers, arming and training them, that the soldiers were taking the sheep of the monastery, that the Noyan Domojirov was always drunk, and that the protests of the Hutuktu were answered with jeers and scolding. The messengers gave very indefinite information regarding the strength of the detachment, some placing it at about thirty, while others stated that Domojirov said he had eight hundred in all. We could not understand it at all, and soon the messengers ceased coming. All the letters of the sate remained unanswered, and the envoys did not return. There seemed to be no doubt that the men had been killed or captured. Prince Chultum Bailey determined to go himself. He took with him the Russian and Chinese presidents of the Chambers of Commerce, and two Mongolian officers. Three days elapsed without receiving any news from him whatever. The Mongols began to get worried. Then the Chinese commissioner and Hunjap Lama addressed a request to the foreigner group to send someone to Narabanchi, in order to try to resolve the controversy there, and to persuade Domojirov to recognize the treaty and not permit the great insult of violation of a covenant between the two great peoples. Our group asked me once more to accomplish this mission pro bono publico. I had assigned me as interpreter a fine young Russian colonist, the nephew of the murdered Bobrov, a splendid writer as well as a cool, brave man. 
Lieutenant-Colonel Mikhailov gave me one of his officers to accompany me. Supplied with an express tsara for the post-horses and guides, we travelled rapidly over the way which was now familiar to me, to find my old friend, Jelib Jamstrap Hutaktu of Narabanchi. Although there was deep snow in some places, we made from one hundred to one hundred and fifteen miles per day. End of chapter.